Finding your perfect home was hard, but thanks to Burrow, furnishing it has never been easier. Burrow's easy-to-assemble modular sofas and sectionals are made from premium, durable materials, including stain and scratch-resistant fabrics. So they're not just comfortable and stylish, they're built to last. Plus, every single Burrow order ships free right to your door. Right now, get 15% off your first order at burrow.com slash ACAST. That's 15% off at burrow.com slash ACAST. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Hello and welcome to the Guardian Books podcast. I'm Claire Armistead and I'm here with Sean Kane and Richard Lee. This week we've got an especially full house as we're also joined by Claudia Rankin, Jeremy Noel Todd and Emily Berry to discuss the new Penguin Book of the Prose Poem. Could prose poetry be the poetic form for our age, we're wondering? But first, Christmas is nearly upon us. The streets are festooned with festive lights. I actually went to the seaside town of Folkestone a fortnight ago to help novelist Kit Duval switch theirs on. There aren't many novelty jumpers yet to be seen, but it can only be a matter of days. Sean, I'm expecting you any minute to appear with a reindeer across your chest. <laughs> I only own Murakami-themed jumpers, as is my choice today. I don't own any Christmas jumpers, and I refuse to buy into it. <laughs> and it'll be Robins for you then, won't it, Richard? No, I'm not wearing a jumper, Claire, obviously. <laughs> that seems a bit jazzy. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, we thought we'd take this opportunity to talk about our books of the year, because we're with Folkestone. If you want to have yourself a merry little Christmas, it's books you should be turning to, not only for your friends and your family, but for yourself. So, Richard and Sean, it's been a pretty busy year, hasn't it? Yeah, well, now is the time for Books of the Years list, and it's a sort of ongoing conversation that happens every year that critics come out and say, well, these are my favourite books, and then people come back and say, well, they're not the books I'm reading, and there's a sort of clash between what critics say were the big books of the year and what readers were saying were the books of the year. I don't classify myself as a critic. I don't review books. I just read them and then occasionally write news about them. Um, So I don't always understand this clash. I sort of feel like sometimes books of the year lists are to sort of just really highlight things that might have been missed as opposed to saying this book sold 100,000 copies. Well done, that book. So there was an interesting conversation actually happening about Milkman, which was this year's Booker winner, that basically it was being... lauded as a sort of significant bestseller this year and I was sort of I I kind of felt like I I personally didn't like Milkman very much and that's just that's just my personal opinion on that but uh, there was this sort of news angle going on about people saying oh well you know it sold really well so therefore the literary novel is saved and it's this sort of beacon of hope um so i was looking into the sales figures for it basically it sold uh, about 4,800 before it won the booker it sold 10,000 the week it won the booker the publisher faber announced a print run of 120,000 copies which is pretty substantial 
and the lifetime sales are now at about 75,000. It came out in paperback in September. That's absolutely amazing. Really, that is out of the usual, isn't well, it? Well, it's certainly for the last fiction. few years. And, and that it is interesting because it is a difficult book. And I know there's this whole conversation, is it difficult as well? It's a difficult book. Let's stop talking about that. Um, but the interesting thing is that this book came out in paperback before the winner was announced. And I sort of, looking at sales figures for the last few years in terms of booker winners, I think that is actually the crucial thing that that's the crucial factor that determines if a book sells well so if we look at it pre-booker it sold 5,000 copies before it was announced that it was it had won and that's including long list and short list stages so it wasn't really shifting that many copies in terms of average readers making the call and saying well I'm going to go out and buy this you know it wasn't a huge bestseller but of course it's just a sort of thing that the booker always makes a book a bestseller so if we look at things like Lincoln in the Bardo last year, last year's book a winner, it had sold around about 10,000 copies before it won. And then it sold 33,000 copies between the win and December. There's a sort of like 12 week period that they sort of say. However, this is entirely in hardback. And so that one was sort of classified as an underperformer that it hadn't sold as well as previous Booker winners. But this is a big literary novel in a hardback, so expensive. And so I think that was actually probably the determining factor in that case. It wasn't necessarily that it was a bad book or people didn't want to read it. I think people were waiting for a cheaper format. Same things with like Paul Beatty, which was um, his book, The Sellout, was only released in paperback here. And that sold 94,000 copies in that post-Booker-Win 12-week period. So looking at that and sort of where Milkman is currently, it seems like Milkman's probably on track to match the sellout by Paul Beatty and probably not going to do what Hilary Mantel's Bring Up the Bodies did, which was 230,000 copies in that 12-week period, (laughs) which is bonkers. Um, So it it sort of seems to me that Milkman is, is doing great, but it's doing what a book a book does. But there is one point that if a book has sold a lot of copies, people don't necessarily want to buy it for Christmas because they've already bought it. So, well, yes. so, so your thing about what is the point of books of the year, partly to point out things that haven't yet done so well. Yes. That's totally legitimate, isn't it? Well, that's it? what I think. It's sort of a thing that if you've already bought David Williams's book for your kids, do critics have to point out to you that David Williams' book for kids is out, you know? There was a sort of fight going on on Twitter, <laughs> David Baddiel getting cross that celebrity books weren't mentioned in our uh, in our critics roundup this year. He but should count himself so lucky. Well, you know, it's the sort of thing that it's, you know they're probably selling really well. We know for a fact Williams is selling really well. So do we have to mention them in our picks of the year? I sort of want to introduce people to books. Exactly, that's the sort of thing that's a hangover from being a bookseller. You want to introduce them to things they haven't read and hope that they like it as well. It's not telling you what's popular. Everyone knows what's popular. Richard, you've been very quiet. I was just wondering, if did George Saunders actually go on to pick up sales in paperback in the following February? Uh, He did, but it wasn't necessarily... That moment had passed. Yeah, exactly. It came out in February, the paperback, so it was sort of very much post-booker. It had the friendly little I won the booker sticker on it, but... So we could almost count him as one of this the books of this year in in paperback years of this year. (laughs) I'll pick him for book of the year every year. (laughs) Our purpose is to talk about the books that we've really loved this year. Mm. So, so um, Richard, which are the ones that stand out for you? Well, none of them, I think, is a a massive bestseller. Perhaps Carlo Rovelli has. I've talked about him. (laughs) 
before when we were looking at our summer reads as far as I recall so let's put him to one side so Richard's read one book this year and he's determined that everyone else from that read it too no it's just really good um, the, so, but, so books that maybe haven't made such a splash I think Samantha Harvey's The Western Wind was, was great mm. and I think very few people picked that up in March but I think it's worth returning to now so There's, many people have said that, that I need to read that Yes. I really do. It's terrific. It's yeah. really well done. It's formally interesting. It's got a heart. It's it's well it's well put together. It's great. Mm. Owen Booth is another interesting book that's that's again formally quite challenging. He's written it's it's about basically about fatherhood. What is it called? It's called What We're Teaching Our Sons. Mm. And it's basically about fatherhood and he started writing it basically as kind of little tiny bits that all had the same form. Uh, we're teaching our sons about X or Y at the, at the beginning of each. These tiny sort of 500 word chapters or pieces that add up together to this kind of group portrait of fatherhood and the kind of troubles that you struggle with. It's really, really good. Another book about fatherhood is Toby Litt's Wrestliana, which was was wrestling with his own fatherhood and his, his ancestors as well and about romantic literature as well. Really good. It's from Galley Baker as well, so a small publisher. Another book from a small publisher that was great was Amy Sackville's Painter to the King, which is about Velasquez and also did a very careful and interesting thing about framing the book with the narrator a little bit like Amy Sackville herself wandering around Madrid. And there's, of course, there's Matthias Enar, another book from a small publisher from Fitzcarraldo this time, translated by Charlotte Mandel. It's his latest. It's Tell Them of Battles, Kings and Elephants. Great title. He Amazing definitely title. gets the prize for title of the year. <laughs> Great title, isn't it? It's about Michelangelo. It's kind of this imagined alternative kind of biographical episode for Michelangelo in Istanbul. It's fantastic. So, Sean, how mm. about you? We actually had a bit of a tussle over Sean Tan, didn't we? <laughs> we always fight over Who's Sean Who's going Tan? to mention he Sean He deserves Tan. fighting over. <laughs> well, yes, uh, so Tales of the, from the Inner City, which is his latest book, and it's uh, physically beautiful, and I encourage anyone to go and actually go find a physical copy of it just to have a look at it. It's definitely not one to get on ebook, but it's a... Uh, his usual uh, illustrations and paintings which are just incredibly beautiful and then paired with little short stories and they're very dreamlike they're sort of almost set in the same they could all be set in the same city the city is ever never named but they all sort of revolve around humanity's relationship with animals and the environment and they're often sort of based on a sort of almost uh, surreal question so there's a story where bears announce to the world that they have their own form of law and it's like, well, how would humanity deal with that if bears started trying to apply charges to humanity for what they've done to the bear population? Um, the answer is quite bleak. <laughs> um, but there's also uh, amazing stories like a little snapshot of a family living in a place where having a pig is a status symbol. So there are these little beautiful little things and they all sort of relate to each other, but it sort of all gives you the idea that humanity is quite narcissistic and we only find value in animals because of how we see ourselves in them and if they're not cute and cuddly or in our lives we just don't care about them and it's a really fantastic book and uh, I actually interviewed him about it and he said writing the book made him a vegetarian uh, (laughs) which is really interesting and it kind of basically has made me vegetarian as well so kind of an unintended consequence but it's a brilliant book um and And if if you if anybody um has got that and wants any more my two go to sean tan's um uh, the lost thing and the arrival um, i heard you keep these in your loo i do i don't have them (laughs) on the windowsill and look well it's such a great place to read sean tan (laughs) 
you, I'm particularly, I mean, this has, Tales from the Inner City has quite a lot of text, but, but yeah. his other ones don't. Yeah, no, they're usually no. like little sort of almost the gift book size little things, like the arrival is only a tiny little thing. And I kind of get what you mean, that it's sort of maybe like a three-minute read, but I don't know if it's an honour to be in the loo. You can meditate on them. <laughs> no, I keep, and also I keep poetry in the loo. Um, Best place for it. Yeah, exactly, exactly. Secrets, too many secrets. Um, um, so other books this year for me... I'll Be Gone in the Dark by Michelle McNamara, which is just the most terrifying book I've read this year. It's a true crime book by this uh, American... She was like a a true crime fan, but she she was a journalist as well, but she didn't really specialise in true crime in any official way. She had this blog, and she basically started investigating a cold case, which basically involved um, a man who was previously called the East Area Rapist, who would go into homes in California back in the uh, 70s and attack women in their homes and tie up the man if the man was present and it's just terrifying but what Michelle did was she actually gave him a new name because she began linking other crimes to the same man and called him the golden state killer and until this year that no one was ever caught for these crimes no one was ever charged and then her book came out and it sort of generated this whole conversation about the fact that this man was never caught and then this year dna linked the case to a man who's now in his 70s he was arrested and he's now currently awaiting trial for all of these rapes and murders michelle mcnamara is now dead she actually died before she finished the book very suddenly and unexpectedly so this book was pieced together by some other true crime fans and her surviving husband as well and it is uh, just such a fascinating book um, and she really emphasizes the victims but it's just kind of amazing to see the impact of a book on the world And then just very quickly, How to Change Your Mind by Michael Pollan, fantastic book uh, about psychedelics and the history of psychedelics, but also Michael's experiences taking psychedelics, which is really, really fun. And he was great on the podcast a few months ago. Uh, Sally Rooney's Normal People, everyone knows it and everyone that's read it loves it. So I've got nothing more to say about it, apart from if you haven't read it, you should. And uh, one last book that I think didn't get enough attention is America is Not the Heart by Elaine Castillo, which was a uh, debut uh, novel all about a Filipino girl who um, moves, migrates to America to live with her extended family there. And it was just a really beautiful and uh, really ambitious debut. And I feel like people need to read it. So, yeah, go read it. So, Claire, what about you? What have you been your favourites? Well, since you you stole Sean Tan, <laughs> I'm going to go. And I love graphic fiction. It's one of my... Mm. my I've, I'm quite a latecomer to it, really. And it's I just find it so relaxing compared to a lot of the stuff I have to read. And I'm going for Jim Broadbent and Dix's Dull Margaret, which is a reworking of the... Uh, it's sort of like an ima- a reimagining of Bruegel's dull greet you know who's Mm. the peasant woman who strides across a landscape a Flemish landscape towards the jaws of hell and it's so funny and so dark this picture of this peasant woman who who's trying to lead a good life and and can't manage it beautifully beautifully drawn and if you if you like Jim Broadbent's humour and if you like Dix's comic strip as seen over many years in The Guardian you Mm. will absolutely love this book Mm. but as far as um, (laughs) I'm going to now seem incredibly pretentious (laughs) we need like a warning like a horn because what i because one of the things i love doing 
when I actually have the freedom to choose is to get into a sector and read in a more concerted way through a sector. And at the moment, I happen to be learning Italian. So I've been reading Italian novelists. And I this year came across Domenico Starnoni for the first time, who is, I think he's, I'm not even sure he's been translated before last year when the novelist Jhumpa Lahiri, who's, who's taken to Italian, translated one of his novels. She's now translated a second this year. He's rumoured to be Mr. Elena Franti. And if he is, then I've sat next to Mrs. Elena Franti. <laughs> but she he wasn't was. fessing up. <laughs> because um, Anyway, um, he is the writer of, of really, really clever novels. And the second one is called trick and it, it's about a grandfather who gets landed with babysitting his four-year-old grandson but it's it's really cleverly constructed it's a meditation on age and on you know the relationship between the old and the young and many other things too and what's the translation like because i think jumper here is kind of engagement with italian is very interesting yeah oh well it's just you know it's like they're joined at the brain <laughs> very 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 smart translation we had i had a fantastic discussion with the two of them and there, there's a real intellectual engagement between them which is lovely you know it's just really exciting mm. to see that and then the uh, the other one i've discovered slightly later in the year is nicola la joya who's he's from Bari interestingly they're both from the south of Italy there's Mm. something really going on in the south of Italy that isn't just Elena Ferranti Um, and he's written a novel called Ferocita Ferocity um, which I've now started rereading in Italian. Oh, <laughs> how cool! And it's actually, I have to say, I'm not very good, and it's <laughs> it's taking me a very long time. It's quite have complicated. Have you got a little dictionary next to you? <laughs> <laughs> and that's a fantastic story of a, a sort of semi mafiosi, I suppose you'd say, although I don't think the mafia particularly come from that area of Italy. Family who who are into property development and how they it's it's a sort of dynastic saga of them destroying each other at the same time as it's about the destruction of the Italian landscape and the revenge of, of nature. So it's sort of got a bit of everything in it. So that's my reading cool. this Christmas and I would recommend both of them. <laughs> Today in Focus is a new Guardian podcast that brings you closer to our journalism by getting behind the news every weekday. You'll join me, Anushka Astana, talking to people at the centre of the big stories impacting our world. We'll use personal perspectives and expert analysis to put you at the heart of what matters. Listen to Today in Focus and subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Spotify or wherever you choose to listen. Finding your perfect home was hard, but thanks to Burrow, furnishing it has never been easier. Burrow's easy-to-assemble modular sofas and sectionals are made from premium, durable materials, including stain and scratch-resistant fabrics. So they're not just comfortable and stylish, they're built to last. Plus, every single Burrow order ships free right to your door. Right now, get 15% off your first order at burrow.com slash ACAST. That's 15% off at burrow.com slash ACAST. Well, at the start of this podcast, I wondered whether prose poetry might just be the form to make sense of our digital century. Indeed, The Guardian's poetry critic Sandeep Palmer mentioned the new Penguin anthology as one of her poetry books of the year. Richard, do you think that there's anything in this? 
Yeah, well, yeah, I mean, Sandeep Palmer said uh, that it illuminates the form's modern and contentious global history, which is in a nutshell why I thought it'd be interesting to get them into the studio. First of all, that perennial question, what exactly is a prose poem? What does that mean? There's two of those things that don't really make sense when you ram them together. But prose poetry, nevertheless, seems to be a thing. And does a writer ever sit down to the poet sit down and think, ah, oh, today I'm going to write a prose poem, or I think this one's, you know, a bit prose poetry-ish. What sort of frame of, <laughs> frame of mind do you have to get yourself into before you actually start producing and something And what is like the that? difference between a prose poem and free verse? Exactly, or indeed a short story. Or I mean, indeed you know, a short story. It's that kind of in-between nature that I kind of wanted to interrogate a little bit. And again, what kind of reception do they get? Are they harder to sell? If you send them out to a poetry magazine, do they say, what, no, this isn't for us or whatever? It's just, where does it fit into the kind of literary economy? And as well, there's this intriguing idea that Jeremy Noel Todd quotes in his um, introduction, that it's the one entirely modern poetic form, he says, which uh, I thought was worth teasing out a little bit. The idea that it's, that it's somehow slippery enough to, to deal with modernity, to deal with the experience of the city, with everything coming at us from all directions, that in some sense it matches up to our age. And of course, it's always good to hear from Claudia Rankin. Well, Richard was joined in London by Jeremy Noel Todd and Emily Berry, while Claudia called in from Yale. She starts us off by reading an excerpt from Citizen, an American lyric. A friend writes of the numbing effects of humming, and it returns you to your own sigh. It's no longer audible. You've grown into it. Some call it aging an internalized liquid smoke blurring ordinary ache. Just this morning, another, what did he say? Come on, get back in the car. Your partner wants to face off with a mouth and who knows what handheld objects the other vehicle carries. Trayvon Martin's name sounds from the car radio a dozen times each half hour. You pull your love back into the seat because though no one seems to be chasing you, the justice system has other plans. Yes, and this is how you are a citizen. Come on, let it go, move on. Despite the air conditioning, you pull the button back and the window slides down into its door sleeve. A breeze touches your cheek as something should. So let's head straight for the heart of the conundrum, Jeremy. The first thing you say people ask when they hear you putting together this anthology, what exactly is a prose poem? (laughs) Yeah, that's right. That's what people have been asking me while I've been making the book. And the best answer I've got, I'm afraid, is that it's a poem without line breaks. It's a layout question. Yeah, it is really. That was the number one consideration about what I put into the book. After that, I couldn't find a single thing that they all had in common, although I've I've guessed at a few things. (laughs) So go on, give us some guesses. Well, I mean, it's not original to say that they often seem to narrate a dream world, that the prose poem often begins in some form of waking life and ends up in a fantasy world. And I think that prose is suited to that trick that dreams play on you of thinking that you're awake you know prose is sort of sober it's awake it's kind of rational writing and then oh no actually suddenly something weird has happened so there's there's something about prose that leads you to think you might have to you're expecting an explanation ah yeah i think that's right yeah because with prose you expect the sentence to complete itself uh, the paragraph to tell you what its point was with a poem you don't necessarily expect that with verse on the page i guess i wonder claudia if that's your experience of it do you think it's this kind of intermediate thing do you ever find yourself sitting down and thinking oh i'm just going to write me a prose poem 
Well, Gertrude Stein said all writing is written, right? So, <laughs> <laughs> so you just write. But but I, I agree, the, the, the prose poem, for me, and the way I've always described it, is a poem that is ruled by the sentence rather than the line, but employs within the sentence all of the mechanisms one would be used to in a formal poem so that you get the same kinds of repetitions, pauses, breaks, cuts, leaps that one is interested in and find in the sonnets, for example, but then it's inside of a sentence. And those rules that one usually um, incorporate inside the, the formal poems are then applied to prose. I guess, when is it that you, I mean, have you always written in this kind of mode? Or, or was there a particular time when you started to leave the line behind? I think I've always gone back and forth. You know, I, I write in many genres. I write sometimes for the New York Times and sometimes I write plays and and often in the room, especially when it's a, um, a collaborative effort like a play, people will say to me, that's too poetic or that's too academic or that's too... And, and, and I'm always interested in, in the fact that their ear is going to one genre versus the other. But I, I've always tended to kind of ski across the genres. <laughs> it's, it's something that I think is often perplexes people or confuses them. I mean, I, I was surprised to hear that when Grove Atlantic received the manuscript of Don't Let Me Be Lonely, they told you it's not poetry. I mean, what, what was your reaction, your response to that? I was surprised, I, I, you know, because I identify myself as a poet. <laughs> and, and I thought our relationship was based on that. So um, Th- That was your intention? That was my intention. And I had read um, Baudelaire, I had read Stein. So it seemed not to very far from those kinds of works. Yeah, so I was surprised. Yeah, sure. What about you, Emily? Do you make a kind of dividing line between your prose and your poems, or is it a little more blurry? Yeah, for me, I don't don't think I think too much about... I mean, obviously, if you're writing something for a very specific audience, like an essay, then you would be thinking of it as an essay. But if I'm writing creatively without any sort of obvious agenda, how it emerges on the page is sort of just how it emerges. I'm not thinking, oh, I'm going to write a prose poem now, or I'm going to write a poem with line breaks. And I think there's increasing kind of hybridity in the way poets are writing these days and you often see poems where there's line breaks and more prose like sections kind of mingled together and that sort of seems fine. Um, Your contribution to this anthology Some Fears could easily have been laid out it seems to me as a kind of as an amateur in these things it could easily have been laid out in lines beginning fear of this fear of that would, would have saved a lot of semicolons, even though there would be those terrifying <laughs> ragged end lines. But did you consider that? Uh, to be honest, I, I've been trying to think back to when I wrote that poem, and I, I have no memory of <laughs> writing it, so I can't. Um, it was published in 2013, and it probably was written a few years before that. But I think for me, it was something about probably thinking about the momentum that you get when you write, you're writing straight across the page, and when you're writing down, there's suddenly a lot more air gets into it if you're writing with line breaks and for me that's a big part of, of how a prose poem can sort of build up a sense of kind of claustrophobia and um, is quite sort of suited to to like Jeremy was saying earlier like a dream-like sort of scenario or nightmare like scenario even. Some fears. Fear of breezes. Fear of quarrels at night time. Fear of wreckage. 
Fear of one's reflection in spoons. Fear of children's footprints. Fear of the theory behind architecture. Fear of boldness. Fear of catching anxiousness from dogs. Fear of ragged right margins. Fear of exposure after pruning back ivy. Fear of bridges. Fear of pure mathematics. Fear of cats expressing devotion. Fear of proximity to self-belief. Fear of damp tree trunks. Fear of unfamiliar elbows. All elbows being unfamiliar, even one's own. Fear of colour leaking from vegetables. Fear of the mechanics of love affairs. Fear of slipping. Fear of ill-conceived typography. Fear of non-specific impact leading to the vertical ejection of the spine from the body. Fear of leaf mulch. Fear of the timbre of poetry recitals. Fear of balcony furniture. Fear of colour leaking from the heart. Fear of internal avalanche. Fear of the notion of a key engaging with the inside of a lock. Fear of psychoanalytical interpretations. Fear of dregs. Fear of book titles. Fear of particular hues of sky glimpsed from aeroplane windows. Fear of text stamped into metal. Fear of promises. Fear of alienation brought on by hospitality. Fear of unexplained light. Fear of comprehensive write-off. Fear of fear. Fear of help. Fear of asking for, receiving, refusing, giving or being denied help. Is it perhaps also some sort of permission, Claudia, permission for flexibility to sort of see how it hangs together? I think that's that's fair. Um, I, I do think that when one starts to delineate the lines, uh, different kinds of considerations come into play. I wonder if there's a if there's something from the book that you've enjoyed or that you've looked back to. Maybe it's something you might like to read a little bit of now, Claudia. Of course. Well, there's the Boyes and I. I could read some of that. The other one, the one called Boyes, is the one things happen to. I walk through the streets of Buenos Aires and stop for a moment, perhaps mechanically now, to look at the arch of an entrance hall and the grillwork of the gate. I know her Boyes from the mail and see his name on a list of professors or in a biographical dictionary. I like how our glasses maps 18th century topography, the taste of coffee, and the prose of Stevenson. He shares these preferences, but in a vain way that turns them into attributes of an actor. It would be an exaggeration to say that ours is a hostile relationship. It's marvellous, isn't it? It's, again, th- th- he seems to be taking advantage of the strategies of prose, but there's a little bit more. I mean, what do you think that little more is, Jeremy? Well, the twist at the end of that poem is he says, I do not know which of us is, has written this page. And that, that's where you do the double take. And it's it's really like that moment of waking from the dream. Yeah, it's the doppelganger. Yeah, I think so. Uh, I mean, Borges says somewhere that he knows he's written these things in prose and he's called them poems. And he wonders whether actually it's a state of mind. He says, if you read something rationally, it's prose. If you read something imaginatively, it's poetry. So he does raise that whole conceptual question of it's how you look at it. Mm, Do you think that's something that strikes a chord with you, Claudia? Do you think it really is a state of mind? I do. There's a poem by Yeats, and I can't, I'm trying to pull the, the name for it, and I can't. But it's a poem that he took out of a prose passage. He just lifted 
three sentences and lineated them and then decided to call that a poem. He did that with a passage from Walter Pater, the, yeah. des- the description of the Mona Lisa, uh, when he put exactly, it into the Oxford exactly right. Book of English verse, and he said, this is a poem, it's free verse. Yeah, it's, it's almost, uh, it's like Duchamp in a way. It's the ready-made. It's, um, if he yes, puts it in the gallery, exactly. there it is. Yeah, I think that's right. But then I think that would be potentially to underplay the fact that prose poets, as Cordia was saying, bring all the technical skills and devices of writing verse to, to prose. And that can be overlooked. It's, it's a form with something of an established track record, isn't it, Jeremy? Where do you place the origins of the prose poem? Well, in in this book, I've gone back to Baudelaire in the middle of the 19th century with this book that was published posthumously uh, that he called Little Poems in Prose or Paris Spleen. It has two titles. But he said about that book that he had taken his inspiration from this even more obscure posthumous book by a writer called Aloysius Bertrand, Gaspard de la Nuit, which are these little visions, which are, they're presented as midnight visions. It's dreamlike visions. They are dreamlike, uh, and some of them are, are very horror uh, fiction uh, in style. And in fact, in the book, I was really pleased to find a translation by the American horror author Thomas Ligotti, which really captures the sort of gothic quality. But the other kind of prose poem that, that Bertrand uh, invents effectively is the one based on paintings. He's very enamoured of uh, Dutch painting of the 17th century. And I think there has always been this relationship between the prose poem and the idea of taking a, a square, a canvas, and filling it with a scene. That is very often something that the prose poem does. So there's a static quality to the writing. Is that, is that something that, again, that, that makes me think instantly of your work, Claudia? Uh, the idea of using the, the, the visual somehow. To, yes, to communicate a visual or an image. I mean, uh, you know, with Citizen, uh, the, the reason why the prose poem seemed sort of necessary for that was looking at um, the way whiteness, as in white people, are unmarked in terms of their actions and, and utterances. It seemed like I could paint these pictures by writing these prose poems that dwelled on an image to create a narrative, to use Jeremy's language. Do you think that the prose poem, if you go back to these roots in, in mid-18th century France, do you think that this is partly because of the, the rigours of the Alexandrine? Well, the, there was certainly a very conscious reaction there, the, the idea of, of liberating oneself from the classical French uh, prosody. And really, the invention of the prose poem is contemporary with the invention of free verse, with Verlibre which is part of the same movement. So I think there was in France, and this is something that M.A. Césaire says, he says in the middle of the 19th century, prosaic France moved into poetry and everything changed, that there was this revolutionary moment, which happens in Paris around about the, the, the 1850s. And Baudelaire directly relates it to the experience of living in Paris at that time. He says, who has not dreamt of the miracle of a poetic prose which could capture this experience of walking the streets and intersecting with so many other people, of trying to sort of capture that variety of urban life which nobody has ever experienced before. This is modernity. That great world city in some sense. Maybe these kind of international uh, roots help explain to some sense the forms international connections, Emily. Or do you think it's just more to do with the, the flexibility offering something that translators feel more comfortable translating? I mean, I guess, yeah, there's less... I mean, I can't really speak for about translation not being a translator, but um, <laughs> if you're translating a poem, you've got to think about all the questions of, of the internal or the external rhymes and whether you're going to try and replicate that in your in your translation. It's kind of feat of construction already. Yeah, the, the architecture of the poem, whereas with prose that's not so apparent i mean of course within a, a prose poem there might there may well be sort of internal rhyme and 
and a, and a structure that's sort of submerged, but it's perhaps less obvious. I mean, Jeremy talks in his introduction about maybe the ease of translating prose poetry as sort of being a part of what's going on in the anthology. I did get a sense that there's, that it becomes a kind of lingua franca, that poets in different languages can pass prose poems around, and that I do think that's what Frank O'Hara is getting at when he makes his joke about how he's writing a poem, and it's even in prose, I am a real poet, yeah. because it's like the most sophisticated <laughs> poets dare to do this. Maybe we can reach across to the wilds of Russia, Emily, and, and have a bit of Turgenev's bad dream. Yeah. So this is the end of the world, a dream. I fancied I was somewhere in Russia in the wilds, in a simple country house. The room big and low-pitched with three windows, the walls whitewashed, no furniture. Before the house a barren plain, gradually sloping downwards. It stretches into the distance. A grey, monotonous sky hangs over it like the canopy of a bed. I am not alone. There are some ten persons in the room with me, all quite plain people, simply dressed. They walk up and down in silence, as it were, stealthily. They avoid one another, and yet are continually looking anxiously at one another. Not one knows why he has come into this house and what people there are with him. On all the faces, uneasiness and despondency. All in turn approach the windows and look about intently, as though expecting something from without. Then again they fall to wandering up and down. Among us is a small-sized boy. From time to time he whimpers in the same thin voice, Father, I'm frightened. My heart turns sick at his whimper, and I too begin to be afraid. Of what? I don't know myself. Only I feel there is something coming nearer and nearer, a great, great calamity. The calamity that you feel is just waiting you at the, at the bottom of the page. It, uh, it's an extraordinary piece. I mean, it's, it's a form that is, as we've been saying, is a little slippery, a little bit blurred. Do you think that's one of the reasons why it's so often ignored, Jeremy? Well, if you're going to call your anthology the Oxford Book of English Verse, you're immediately excluding prose uh, by definition. So I do think it has fallen, well, between the cracks perhaps or outside of the established categories. And there certainly seemed to me for a while in British poetry to be a tendency to do the prose poem once that you would read a book of verse and there'd be one prose poem in there, like a sort of party piece. Done now. Um, yeah, exactly. Um, and I think it's, in, I mean, it seems to me in America, it became, it was in the 90s that people began to write whole books and to say, these are books of poems. And perhaps it's in the last decade in the UK that people have begun to say that and to have it recognised. And certainly Claudia's book, Citizen, winning the prize a couple of years ago, was very important in that, in, as it were, kind of bringing it into the discussion about poetry. A moment of validation in, in yeah. some sense. I mean, is, is that something that you found when you're trying to place poems you've written? Do you find it easier to place poems that are laid out in lines than as prose? Do you mean place as in in a magazine? In a or? magazine or... I don't know. I don't think I know. I mean, I, th I think now people are more open to... All forms but certainly that would have been the case probably I don't know a few years back and it's certainly the case that sort of outside of the sort of subculture of poetry where people are coming face to face with innovation all the time the sort of wider public are very very suspicious of not even of prose poetry but of poetry that doesn't <laughs> rhyme I mean I edit the poetry review a poetry magazine and one of the most common complaints we receive is why don't any of the poems in this journal rhyme um, it's not real. Yeah. <laughs> so you should say you can fill in your own rhymes. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. 
<laughs> ask for, for additions, exactly. I don't know, or perhaps do you think we're catching up, though? I hope so. I hope that people can begin to recognise the, the sort of vitality of all different forms and that prose poetry isn't, isn't not a form. I mean, it's a very much a form. It's just a different type of form to, to lineated poetry. And it has all the same sort of constraints, or different constraints, but it has its own constraints that make it sort of important. Perhaps indeed. I mean, you say, Jeremy, that it's a uniquely kind of modern form that is made in, in a sense for the modern world. Perhaps it's, uh, it's the perfect form, Claudia, to measure up to this complicated situation we find ourselves in. Well, it's, I think any form is the perfect form, depending on who's behind the pen. But, <laughs> <laughs> but I, I do think that for me, the prose poem is the perfect form to allow me to create the music of the narrative of the devastation altogether. The new therapist specializes in trauma counseling. You have only ever spoken on the phone. Her house has a side gate that leads to a back entrance she uses for patience. You walk down a path bordered on both sides with deer grass and rosemary to the gate, which turns out to be locked. At the front door, the bell is a small round disc that you press firmly. When the door finally opens, the woman standing there yells at the top of her lungs, Get away from my house! What are you doing in my yard? It's as if a Doberman Pinscher or a German Shepherd has gained the power of speech. And though you back up a few steps, you manage to tell her you have an appointment. You have an appointment? She spits back. Then she pauses. Everything pauses. Oh, she says, followed by, oh, yes, that's right. I'm sorry. I am so, so sorry. The Penguin Book of Prose Poems is edited by Jeremy Noel Todd, featuring works by Emily Berry and Claudia Rankin, among others, and it is published, of course, by Penguin. And it's just one of many highlights of what actually has been an incredibly rich poetry year. And as I have written in The Guardian elsewhere, I think that there's been a bit of a, a reverse takeover going on, that poetry in some ways is in a better, more lively, dynamic place than the novel and is beginning to backwash. A big example being Robin Robinson's book, A Shortlisted, The Long Take, which he on this podcast very clearly said was a narrative poem, nevertheless, you know, came within a whisker of winning the premier prize for fiction. Do you think he's got a point? Do you think it really is a poem or do you think we should claim it for fiction? Well, this is that's interesting. And it, this is it gets to the root of the whole difficulty around prose poetry. Is It is a poem um, and it does have bits of prose in it as well. But it is a narrative. And I suppose it, actually it all comes down to marketing, doesn't it? <laughs> I mean, really, the publishers as so many things in life. would do better as a novel than as a poem. People... But do you think that poetry is reclaiming the epic in some sense? Yeah, and I, uh, I mean, there, there's also really interesting work going on in YA, young adult fiction, particularly by Sarah Crossan, who's the new Irish children's laureate, who's written several novels in blank verse now, and one of which, uh, she, he, she's dealing with subjects like conjoined twins, and her most recent one, Moonrise, was dealing with the death penalty. It's about two brothers, one of whom has been sentenced, is on death row, and it doesn't have any happy endings. Really, really serious stuff. But there's something about the form that allows her to right with to have a, a very light touch approach to a really really serious subject it sort of dances along and it never gets bogged down which I think 
can easily happen and and there, and also the form enables enables it to be accessible to young people although it's not her approach is not simplistic at all no, is it very is it very dense is it very lyrical what's it like no it's not it's very matter of fact i mean it it enables dialogue to be presented very very directly and also the inner thoughts of a young boy when he's facing up to this terrible thing that's happening to his brother it's 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 really impressive i mean on, on other fronts i've just received a proof of the debut novel from the poet and playwright Inwa Ellams who was responsible for one of this year's theatre hits which was barbershop chronicles which was at the national theatre um, and this is called the half god of rainfall and Inoue is a very interesting figure because he's he's into sort of he challenges masculinity and it's very he's he's it's very gentle and this this novel which is invokes sort of great mythologies of the world is dedicated in solidarity with women who have spoken up against or stood up to male abuses of power in all its forms you know again very timely really timely and you know he's a, a very lovely flexible fluid writer but i mean let's not forget conventional poetry either. <laughs> <laughs> although this is the point at which shan scoots out of the room because <laughs> shan is not a great poetry reader <laughs> you know again I, I just think that i mean I, it's terrible and i'm always being taken to task for talking about whole sectors in terms of prizes but in terms of poetry it is quite useful it's quite a useful lightning rod and if you look at what happened in the forward prizes as they are and what what has happened on the T.S. Eliot shortlist we're at shortlist stage there's some you know there are really interesting new voices coming in here and um, you know voices from the queer community diversity all sorts from different performance backgrounds you know I think that there's something really interesting sort of rumbling tectonic rumblings are happening in the in the poetry world but we also have you know old favorites like Nick Laird and Sean O'Brien Yes, and also on that T.S. Eliot shortlist is, is Terence Hayes, who was on this podcast just recently and, and, and read one of his poems fantastically for us. Yeah, let's just listen to a little bit of that to remind ourselves of how brilliant pure poetry can be. American Sonnet for My Past and Future Assassin Glad someone shot, deserved to be shot, finally, George Wallace. After you send your basket of bombs and berries for the girls the bomb buried in Birmingham, After you add your palms to the psalms and palm-colored caskets of the girls the bomb buried in Birmingham, I'll muster a pinch of prayer for you. You are the blind protagonist of a story that begins, in my previous life, my work involved returning runaway slaves to slavery, and ends with the image of a black nurse pushing your old ass in a wheelchair. Can you guess what black folk passing empty cotton fields feel, George Wallace. I damn you with the opposite of that feeling. I keep thinking I'm confessing for the first time the reason I fear you, and you keep asking why I'm telling this old story again. Well, we hope you've had enough here to whet your Christmas appetites. We'll leave the details of the books we mention on the webpage. But for now, please subscribe and review us wherever you get your podcasts and join the discussion on Twitter at Guardian Books or by leaving a comment on the podcast page. So from me, Claire Armistead. Me, Sean Kane. And me, Richard Lee. And our producer, Susanna Trezillian. Goodbye and thanks for listening. From The Guardian, 
just go to theguardian.com slash podcasts.